Uh, I'm their executive pastor here at Anchor, and it is so good to see you guys this morning. Uh, we're talking about time. I wish I could say that we planned this with daylight savings time. We didn't. Um, it's just, it's a fun coincidence. I, I had almost forgotten it was daylight savings time until my now turned six-year-old child stood creepily by the side of my bed at 5 a.m. and whispered in the creepy tone of voice, only a small child can, Dad, can I get up? You may not get up. But at that point, I did not fall back asleep after that. So if you also got up early, we're hanging out. We have coffee for that purpose today um, out in our lobby. Man, I'm excited about this series. I'm excited to say, what does it look like to be generous in some, some pretty big areas of our life? Whether it's time, whether it's talent, whether it's treasure. And, and here's a couple of things that I just want to say up front. Like, one, we're diving into these areas because we have a firm belief this, that God cares about all of us. Like, God cares about all of us, like all people, all of us, but God actually cares about all of me and all of you. And so I think there's a lot of times, like, I grew up in church where at times it felt like we talked about money that one time of year, maybe when the church was having budget issues. And, like, I need you to know this isn't that serious, like, this series was planned ages ago as a time where we're like, hey, this is a time where we think we're going to have some moments and look and say, God, what is going on with all of my life and what are you having that for me? Like, our goal is for you guys to be as healthy, as whole individuals as possible. Um, we know that's not going to be fully possible. We put imperfect out on the wall out front for a reason. Um, and we're walking in that journey as well. So does that make sense? Like, God cares about all of us. And he says that we are at our best when all of us is at our best. And these three areas of time, talent, and treasure, uh, to use an analogy, right, they're like rudders on a ship. Right? I actually believe this, that a small shift in any direction in any one of these three areas can radically change the course of our life for the better or for the worse. And so today we're going to be talking about time. Something that's irrefutable is this, is that all of us get 168 hours a week, 24 hours a day, all of us have a beginning and an end to our life. I do want to say this, right? Life circumstances, a lot of times outside of our control, do dictate how much of that time we get to spend, right? Like, it, if you are a teenager in the room, I'm sorry, you have to spend 40 to 50 hours at school in some capacity. Like, that's just the rule. A single parent has less of those 168 hours available as kind of like free, free play time, right, than a single financially independent retiree, right? Like that's just the reality of life. But at the same time, all of us do have a decent amount of time, and I would posit more time than I'm willing to admit I have, that I actually do have a choice with what I use it to do. And so today we're going to ask ourselves these questions. What do we do with that time? Where does it go? What does generosity look like when we think about time? Over the next few weeks, we have a text, uh, fully pun intended, that we're using as an anchor text um, in 2 Corinthians, starting in, uh, in chapter 9. Some background on Corinthians and on what we're doing here. Corinthians is going to be um, in the kind of middle to, to two-thirds part of the New Testament of our Bible. If you're looking where is the New Testament, that's also two-thirds of the way through our whole Bible. Now, it's named Corinthians because it was written by a man named Paul who knew Jesus, and he was writing a letter to people who were gathering together to follow God, like you guys are today, in the town of Corinth. Now, it's called 2 Corinthians because it was his second letter to them. 
He's made some visits to the, to the Corinthians. He's written a letter before this. The first letter is really interesting. Uh, he actually says this in his first letter. When I visited, I was a little hesitant. I wasn't bold. Uh, and then, to use a wrestling term, Paul comes off the top rope in 1 Corinthians. Like, he just, he, he lays it out. There are some things that really desperately needed called out, and he does not beat around the bush. He just calls them out for it. And so he has a reputation with the Corinthians now where it's like, you're our boss, you're our mentor, and we know we might be in trouble. And I, I don't know if this happened like this, but when, when letters were written to churches at this time, they were given and then they were read up front like I'm reading right now. And so I just, I don't think this is what happened. I like this picture I have in my head that like Paul has sent his second letter to the Corinthians and they're just like passing it around. Like it's a hot potato. Like, I don't want to read it. You read Paul's letter. I don't want to read it. You read Paul's letter. I'm not going to be the one that says this in front. I know that we're going to, right? And so like they're, they're a little apprehensive about it. So that's, that's kind of the context of where we are. If you want to read along with us, it's going to be up on the screen or you can find it in your Bibles. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 12. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. We're going to leave that on the screen. We're going to focus in on verse 13. It says this, Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God. For the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ, and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. Paul's saying this in this section, right? He's saying this, your generosity reflects a profound understanding of God's generosity. Your generosity comes from a place of understanding God's generosity. It's interesting, he says, accompanies your confession of the gospel, and and, and just to catch everyone up, right? The gospel is this. The gospel is the core truth that the church believes. The gospel is this core truth, this core belief that says that God loves us, God made us, but we're all imperfect. And that we all do something called sin, which is, shows our brokenness and that we, we, we walk away from God. But God loves us, and so Jesus came, lived a perfect life on earth, died, and then three days later rose again. And, and through that work of Jesus, we actually have two things. One, we have access to a relationship with God, we have the opportunity to spend eternity with God. So that's the gospel. And so I love that it says this, that because of your belief in that core truth that the church teaches, out of that comes service. Out of that comes generosity. Uh, in, in earlier in this letter, in chapter 8, verse 8, Paul says a very similar thing. He says this, I'm not commanding you. Which I, I, quick pause there. As a parent, there's times where I'm like, I'm not, I'm not telling you. My kids are like, no, you're, you're telling us, Dad. I love that, right? Paul says, I'm not commanding you, but I do want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I love this. Paul's saying this, that when we understand the generosity of God, we become generous ourselves. When we understand that God came to earth himself in the form of Jesus and, and, and had no reason to other than love for us, other than grace for us, other than generosity towards us, and was brutally hurt, punished, and killed for us, that when we understand that generous act, we in turn become generous. We are generous when we understand that God was first. Because this is like, 
this is the main thing we're going to talk about over the next three weeks. Uh, as you know, Anchor, as you probably know, Anchor is, a, is one church that meets in a few different locations. And, and right now, uh, Brian, our lead pastor, is over at our Lincoln location. And, and we want to make sure we're on the same page, especially with this next section. And like, this is so important what we're going to hear. Like, I want you to take a lot from today, but I want you to take this. Because I think as we talk about today, we have to remember the context and the place, not only that the letter was written in, but that we're in right now. Like, we're in a church, guys. And so as we talk through this series, as we talk through time, as we talk through town, as we talk through treasure, you're going to hear some principles and some concepts that you've actually heard outside of the church. There's going to be some things you're like, oh, I think I've heard that in a TED Talk. I think I've read that in a book. And I think that's fine, right? Like, I, I actually believe this, that all truth is God's truth. Like, I have friends that have studied deeply, and they think, man, God created the world in such a cool way. Right? There's a lot of wisdom in that. My dad um, was in finance for most of his career, and he taught me a ton about finances. And some of that were biblical principles that he had learned by, by growing up and being in church. And, but a lot of it was also just, like, normal, like, wisdom that you see out in the world. My dad would reread uh, the very small kind of allegorical book, Richest Man in Babylon, and, and encouraged me to do the same. And I know a lot of the financial principles he's taught me came from that. And that's okay, right? Knowledge is good. But there has to be something different here. Right? Like, there has to be something different that we do here, that I say here, that we receive differently here than a TED Talk. Like, this can't be a TED Talk. This can't be the same thing that you see on social media. This can't be a self-help seminar. This can't be what you see in your favorite Instagram influencer about how to hustle and grind and, and find freedom. And there has to be something different. And there's actually kind of this dichotomy that I think is so important. You see, everything that you'll find in the world's wisdom about these topics, time, talent, and treasure, has to do with reaching for freedom. Has to do with reaching for freedom. Has to do with grasping for freedom. Has to do with work as hard as you can in your 20s and 30s, and then on the other side, you'll do whatever you want because you'll finally have true freedom. And there's nothing wrong with working hard. There's actually parts in Scripture that say it's really important for us to work hard. But if freedom, that kind of freedom, is your goal on the other side, you try so hard to reach for it, to earn it, you're going to get to the other side and realize that there's not more freedom on the other side. There's actually just more bondage. Because in the church, we believe firmly this, that true freedom has to come first and foremost from Jesus and what he did for us. Like, that's actual freedom. And so there's a shift that I want us to do, which is this, that we are not called to reach for freedom, but we're called to live from the freedom that we already have. Now again, I want to I take a pause here, right? The church is called to speak out against injustice. You can't read the Old Testament or the New Testament and not speak out against the oppression and slavery of others, and that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is what the world today will call freedom that really isn't freedom. The world will call freedom when it says you can do what you want and not worry about anyone else, and they say that's freedom. And that so often is the freedom that culture is telling us to reach for. That's so often that you see, whether it's a TED Talk, whether it's Gary Vee on Instagram, or it's whoever it is, right? That's the freedom that they're telling you to reach for, and we need to know that that is not real freedom. Does that mean we turn a blind eye to injustice? Absolutely not, but it means that we do have to understand that true freedom comes only from Jesus. So when we talk about generosity, when we talk about what does it look like to be generous with our time, we have to ask the question, what does it look like to live out of the freedom that God has given us? A friend of mine eloquently put it this way. He says, we need to learn what it looks like to live out of being loved by God. 
And so as we look at time, I actually, we're going to start with an area of time that I think we can only focus in on if we're realizing that we're living from freedom, not reaching for freedom. Okay, we need to live from freedom, not reach for freedom. And so the first thing we're going to talk about is setting aside time for rest. Time for rest. You see, if you're constantly reaching for freedom, you'll believe that you should only get as much rest as you physically need to survive for the next decade or so until you can get to that spot of, of financial freedom or whatever that type of freedom is that you're pulling for. And that's not what God has for us. Uh, think about this. How much, do you, how much do you sleep? Like, ask yourself that question. I don't, we're not going to do hands. It's going to get embarrassing more for me than for you. Um, but think about how much you sleep. For average people, right, that's about a third of your time is spent sleeping. Scientists would say that, like, it should be about a third of your time spent sleeping. And so if we were to compare time and how we spend our time and how we spend our rest time to, say, a budget, sleep is like mortgage or rent payments. Where it's like, it's necessary, it's vital, it's real boring. Like, I don't get real excited that I'm like, man, I spent a lot of money on my rent this month. But, like, we got to do it. In college, I had a friend who who was, was housing insecure and was couch surfing from place to place to place and just didn't have a place to live. And the stress that that took on his body and his mind of not having a place to go and to recharge and to be comfortable was significant. And I just, I just wonder how much, how many times we couch surf when it comes to our rest habits. Like how many times do we treat sleep like that? How often do you couch surf with your sleep habits? Like, I'm going to do the minimum that I need to get by and to survive, and I'm going to get on to the next day, and we'll deal with that then. I did that. Wasn't great on the other side of that. I think God knew this, that when he created us, that we need sleep. Right? And as a parent of, of three kids that are now six, three, and 11-month-old, like, bad things happen when people don't sleep. Like, the worst aspects of humanity that I've seen in my home have been a direct result of not sleeping. The craziest arguments that my wife Rose and I have gotten into have been a direct result of us not sleeping. When I watch, like, the kid just, like, have a meltdown for no reason, it's not sleeping, right? We need sleep. It's so important, guys. But it can't just be sleep that we use for rest. We also need to rest outside of when we sleep. In Exodus uh, chapter 20 is the first time that we see the, the oft-quoted Ten Commandments in Scripture. And it talks about this rhythm of rest that's not just sleep, but is actual rest from work, from responsibilities, from, from the, the, the whirlwind of your day. Later in Deuteronomy chapter 5, two books later in the Old Testament, it talks about resistance. And this idea of Sabbath or rest as resistance. And that's how it's framed. I love that idea. Church, can we resist that way culturally? Like, the world stopped for about a year, year and a half. I think a lot of us came out on the other side with some healthier rest habits, and here's what I want to do. Can you hold on to those? Because before we know it, the world is going to go back to 200 miles an hour. Maybe for you, your workplace already feels that way. And if we don't set aside this time for rest the way God does and has for us, we're going to get caught back up in that whirlwind again. I just think this, a lot of times we, we, we like the idea of the church being countercultural, but we don't know what that means. I think it means that sometimes. Like, can we be countercultural in that way as a church, where we say, no, like, God actually says we are wired for rest, and rest is important, and that's going to be my way of resisting this lie that culture tells me, that if you're not, you know, like a shark, right, swimming, and if you stop moving, you're going to die. Like, can we not buy into that lie? Can we be people who say that rest is important? Jesus 
gets asked a lot of times about the legal questions of following the Sabbath, and I love what Jesus says. He says, the world's not as black and white as you think, but there is a truth that matters, and that is that rest is important for humans. Because the world's never as black and white as we think, and I love that Jesus tells us this, but he says rest is important for humans. One of the things that drew me to this church is Brian's leadership on this. He's often shared from the stage the story that, that his wife Candace says, you can plant a church in Tacoma, we can do this together, but here's what we need. We need a family night and we need a date night. We need those rhythms of rest built in or else I'm out. I love that. I love that there's a leader who sets that tone and it's, it's been challenging at times for me to follow that. I think you need to figure out what rest looks like for you. There was a season in my life where I wasn't the kindest to my wife Rose. I thought all the things that I was doing, all the things I was volunteering with that, that had ministry concerns or, or related things were really important. So there was a season where we had a preschooler and a toddler, and I would miss four bedtimes in a row every week. And I realized, like, I wasn't spending enough time of rest with my family. Because one, not only is that just a brutal thing to do to say you're going to do four bedtimes with two angry toddlers on your own, but also Rose and I had a conversation where that time of rest after the kids are in bed and we're just unwinding and talking about our day, like she missed that and I was missing that. We have to build in these rhythms of rest. I think this, that our ability to rest is often dependent on our vision of God. And so if you're coming in today or you've been here for a while and you have a vision of God as a tyrant and a mean God, you're not going to think that you can rest. If you have a vision of God as propping up a, 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 a religious entity or structure that's uh, rules and guilt and, and how do you earn God's love, you're not going to think that you can rest. But on the flip side, if you, if you believe that God is a generous God who loves you and wants what's best for you, you're going to have an easier time resting. I think this, a lot of times we refer to God as God the Father, and sometimes when we have a hard picture of God in our heads, it's because we have a hard picture of our dad in our heads. If you think you always have to be working, I wonder if your dad was always working. If you think God is going to guilt you for not working enough, I wonder if your dad guilted you for not working enough. You felt that was the case anyways. If you have one of those negative pictures of God, there's actually two places that I want you to examine. The first is this, look at the whole of Scripture. Like, look at the whole of Scripture, and I promise you, you're going to see a heart of God who is generous and for you and loves you and wants what's best for you. But the second place is this. Will you look at your childhood? Will you look at your upbringing? Like, I've had to unpack—I had amazing parents, and there's still stuff I have to unpack from my childhood that's affected the way that I view God. Because people love imperfectly, and people receive love imperfectly. And so if you're having a hard time thinking that God would want you to rest, will you look at those two places? Will you look at your childhood, and will you look at the whole of Scripture? If you're like, I don't know where to start looking at the whole scripture, I'll find me in the lobby. I want to talk to you about that. I think this God wants us to rest. He wants us to be generous. He wants us to be generous with, with how we rest. I also think this, he wants us to, to be generous and make time for relationships. I was reading a study recently that said this. It says that the average human spends about 39 minutes daily socializing. 39 minutes. The average human also spends over four hours a day using apps on an electronic device. Now, this isn't going to be John's the old man shaking his head at the clouds like technology is bad, but like we have to understand there's a downside to technology. Like I love technology. I think it's helped connect. Rose and I dated for long distance for two years, and I wish technology was better then, right? Like I used calling cards at one point. Okay, I'm, I'm older than I want to believe. But... 
like technology does have a downside. A friend of mine who was leading social media for a nonprofit said this. They said, if you're not using social media to enhance real physical relationships that you have, you're doing it wrong. Now, I think there are exceptions to that. Like, I, I used to be out on online dating. Like, I've now known too many friends who have found, found their spouse through online dating. Like, that's great. Like, I love that. You're like, John, I'm trying to use social media to meet my real people. It's a really small pond. There's no more fish in it. I need to online date. Like, that's fine. Like, I get it. But by and large, can we look at using social media, can we look at using devices to enhance the existing relationships that we already have? Studies show this. It takes 40 to 60 hours to form a casual friendship. My extrovert's in the room who says it takes four to six minutes. That's not a friendship. You're just really excited to talk to someone new. I love that for you. That's not a friendship. It takes 80 to 100 hours to become a friend. It takes 200 hours to become a good friend. And, and those hours, right, we don't, we don't just cram those hours in like we're studying for a test. It takes usually about two months to form a casual friendship. I think one of the things that I've struggled with as, as someone who's worked in ministry is this, is it can be so easy to spend your time, instead of cultivating actual friendships and relationships, cultivating the image of friendships and relationships. And I can have some really good church, God-centric reasons for like, no, I just, like all the students just need to get to know me. And like if, if all these volunteers get to know me, then they're going to be more invested, and then the church is going to grow, and God's going to do amazing things through that. And and I can tell myself some really good lies. Maybe you're, you're here and you're in the business world, and that's the same thing for you, but with networking. Say, I just need to know the right amount of people, the right amount of contacts, and then I'm going to be fine. Maybe you're here and, and, and you're, you want to be an entrepreneur, and so you, you saw feedback, you had a mentor figure tell you, surround yourself with people who are going at the same pace and the same level with you, and so what you've done is you actually surround yourself with a lot of coworkers who want to be entrepreneurs or mentors, but you don't have any real friendships. And the trap when you do this, the trap that I've fallen into, that you might fall into, maybe you have fallen into, is that you get on the other side and you realize, I don't have any solid friendships. You become this like jack-of-all-trades, master of none, but with people instead of skills. Relationships take time. And can we just be really honest? Like, friendship is hard. Like, friendship is really hard. Like, my, my six-year-old's making great friends in kindergarten, like the kindergarten sense, and I'm like, I want friendship to be that easy, and it's just not as an adult. One of the, on the other hand, like, I think sometimes we make it too hard on ourselves. One of the longest adult friendship relationships that Rose and I have with another couple is a couple that, like, we did a, we trained their youth group to do something, and we were talking with them afterwards, and I was like, I'm going to ask them to be my friend. <laughs> it's going to be like on the playground. And it was so awkward. <laughs> but they've been friends with us for, like, 10 years. And, like, it was so much better in that moment. Like, it was awkward. Because they're like, wait a second, we're not in third grade. Did you just ask, can you be my friend? It's like, yes, I did. And I remember our friend Rachel, she's like, I was thinking that too. And they're amazing friends of ours now. Like, I think sometimes we just make it too hard for ourselves, and it's a hard thing to do already. I think one of the reasons why friendship is so hard is we have really unrealistic expectations. 
I think it's easy in a day of social media where we can feel deeply connected to people through their stories or through what they post to feel like we need to be close friends with everyone. And I need to remind myself and you to look at Jesus in these moments. Jesus, God himself, Jesus Christ had three friends, guys. Like he had three. He had the 12, but like really when when the chips were down, when things were at, Jesus had three friends. Like, can you give yourself some grace that you don't have 40 close friends? Like, can you give yourself some grace that, like, the literal Messiah had three friends? I love that. Like, Jesus had it easier than us in a lot lot of ways because he's perfect. But, like, also in this sense that it's really hard to make friendships in in our day and age and culture. And I just, if you're struggling with friendships, can I just give you this encouragement? Will you take, will you be kind to yourself? Will you take time? It takes two months to form a casual friendship. And we live in a world that says, like, within two minutes, you can decide if you want to have a really physically intimate act with someone. And so the idea that it takes two months to form a casual friendship seems so antithetical to what we're seeing in the world, but I promise you it's true. That we've sped everything up culturally, including relationships in romantic sense, in friendship sense, in work sense, and guys, we just need to slow down. Like, will we slow down and give yourself grace and give yourself time to build those relationships? When we live from God's generosity in this area, we get to use our time to form meaningful friendships where we can be intentionally vulnerable, where we can offer others the same generosity that we ourselves have received. The last thing that I think God wants us to put time aside for is this. It's time for serving. Deuteronomy 15 says this. It says, There's always going to be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed towards your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Jesus says this, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others. I think a lot of times when we look at leadership, we don't think of serving, and Jesus says that needs to be flipped. The word for minister in the New Testament is a Greek word, diakonos, and it actually means servant. And this idea is a contrast to what's presented as the way forward, but I promise you it's in alignment with how God has wired us. And science backs this up too. There's been a number of studies that have come out in the last few years, and studies say that anywhere from 25 to 45% is the amount that you will extend the length of your life by serving others. 25 to 45%. And I'm not, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a brain scientist. That'd be cool. I'm not. Um, but, like, there's stuff that happens the way our brains are, because our brains are hardwired to serve others. Our brains are wired to serve others. These last couple of years, I'm not talking about the people in this room. I'm talking about culturally the last couple of years. It feels like we've kind of withdrawn into ourselves. And I get that. My wife Rose was pregnant for... I don't know, like the second, like, months three through nine. Like, really pregnant and vulnerable for, like, months three through nine of the, of the pandemic. And so, like, I get that in this season we've had moments where we've needed to kind of, like, batten down the hatches and withdraw inward and, and take times. But I think it would be a mistake if we stay stuck there. Because I think that there's times where, like, and I've done this where I said, God, I need, to, I need to press inwards, I need to come inwards, I need to talk to my closest friends, I need to huddle around, and it's so easy to stay there. 
I just think this, when we start to serve outside of ourselves, it does things that we're not even aware of, but it does things that are healthy for us. It does things that change how we view ourselves, how we view the world, and it is good for us. When we serve, it actually pulls us out of guilt. It pulls us out of of shame. It pulls us out of the lies that we're constantly telling ourselves in our head. And have the band come forward and, and communion team as well come forward as we as we wrap this up. I just think this, I want I want to have you hear this more than anything else. You shouldn't be serving out of guilt. We should be serving out of generosity. Like there's a God who says this, that I did not come to be served, but to serve you. And it's out of that leadership, out of that just gift, that generosity that we see from Jesus that we are called to serve. We have some really practical ways that that can happen here at Anchor. We have serve teams, whether it's greeters, coffee, worship, communion, kids, students. I think this, like God has wired you in a certain way for a purpose, and we would love to allow you to serve that purpose here at Anchor. Like we just think that you're going to be better for it. I think this place will be better for it. But I also think this God, where you live is not an accident. You've heard me say that before. And so we have this thing um, that's always open, which is called neighborhood initiatives. If you're like, hey, I want to serve the people in my neighborhood. I want to serve the people in this part of town. I, I would love to do that. We want to come behind you in that. Like we want to come behind you in that. Jesus led with an incredible example of service, and we want to follow that. There's an exercise that, that Brian and I have both done with our, with our college students, with our youth students, and it's this. We ask them to do this. Will you write the eulogy you want given at your funeral? Will you write the eulogy that you want given at your funeral? I've done this with 14-year-olds, and it's It's fun. As I get to watch a, a 14-year-old or a 15-year-old write, incre- like the same kid who's making fart noises is like writing just an incredibly deep thing about their legacy. And that's beautiful, right? I, I've, I've said from this stage before, like I went, to, I went to a memorial service a few years ago and it changed my life. The words that everyone said about this man, Charlie, and just the way that he loved people the way Jesus did, I said, man, I want my funeral to be like that someday. I think this, you probably, whether you realize it or not, you have a picture of the person that you want to be known for when your time here comes to an end. As we look at time in these areas of of rest, of relationship, of service, the question that I want you to ask, and it's a question that I try to ask myself really often, is this, is the way that I'm using my time bringing me closer to that eulogy that I want or further away? Because honestly, like, there's middle ground on a lot of stuff. There's really not middle ground on this, guys. Like, our choices are bringing us closer to that person we want to be known for or further away from the person we want to be known for. I want to encourage those of you who are here that, that feel like life hasn't gone the way you thought it would. Maybe you're getting towards what you believe is the end of your time here. And you're wondering, is there still time for me to change that legacy of who I am? Maybe you're here and you're, you're past young adulthood and, and you feel so far behind your peers. You're not using your degree. You don't, you're not in a career you love. You don't have that family yet that you wanted for. And you're wondering, am I too far off track? I think this, nothing is ever wasted with God, guys. There is always still time. I was talking with Brian about this, and he said this. He said, there's no garbage time with God. 
Right? If you're watching a, a football game or a basketball game and there's a blowout and you watch guys just rack up stats and it's, it's called meaningless because the game's already over, nothing is meaningless with God. There is still time, no matter how old you are, no matter how young you are, no matter how on track or off track you believe that you are, there is still time for you to work towards that legacy of who God has made you to be. Because Here's the thing, guys. We have choices that we get to make. We have choices that bring us closer or further from that legacy, but the, the bulk of that work has already been done. The bulk of that work has already been done by Jesus. We're doing communion a little bit differently, but a little bit the same to what it was. We're going to have five stations for communion across the room. We're going to have the, the four corners, the candles on the tables. We're going to have one up front here. And here's our heart behind communion. Communion is something we do to remember that sacrifice that Jesus made, to remember that generosity that God made, that God gave to us when we did not deserve it. Because this has to be different, right? This can't be a TED Talk. This has to be a moment where we realize that God has already died and risen again and paid the price for anything, and because of that, we have real freedom. We get to live from that freedom. And so communion, this moment where today, if you want to partake, you'll walk up to a table and, and someone with a mask and gloves on will hand you a cup and say, Christ's blood shed for you, Christ's body given for you is a real tangible way of remembering that tremendous gift of generosity that Jesus gave us. So communion today, it's open for anyone who said yes to Jesus. Even if today you're saying, I'm tired of reaching for freedom, I want to live for freedom. I want to live from that freedom that God has given me. If that's you, if you've made that decision today, we would love for you to have communion with us. So I'm going to pray. band's going to play a song, and as the band plays a song, I'd encourage you to just take a couple moments with God, and then I would encourage you to partake of communion at one of the stations in the room. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your generosity. God, there's no words that I can say that seem adequate expressions for how amazing your generosity is. God, you know our deepest parts of ourself, the parts that I've tried to bury and push away and have no one know about God. You say, John, I know that and I love you and I am for you and I have paid for that and you have freedom. So God, if there's anyone here who is struggling with that, God, would you lean in on their heart? God, would you remind people that you have given us freedom through the death and resurrection of your son? God, we thank you for this place where we do get to gather together, where we do get to have these different conversations, these different moments where we say, God, it's about you, not about us. So God, above all, we just thank you for your generosity and the way that that spurs our hearts to be generous. God, may we be known as a generous community. May we be known as the community that's so generous with our time to ourselves and to others. In your name, amen.